Um, really, really great week. I just loved watching all the kids learn and have fun together. Um, if you see some of the kiddos that were a part of the Summer Bible Clubs, ask them what they learned. They learned a lot. And I, more than that, I even love seeing so many people in our church involved, um, uh, loving, helping us disciple the kiddos in this church. So it's been a great week. And this morning, we're starting a new sermon series. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, we'll get to the text in just a minute. Um, if you have paper or pen, I want to invite you to take that out as well. I want to encourage you to be taking notes over the next four weeks. We're in this sermon series as we wind down the summer that we're calling Good News. And it's going to be a short sermon series, but one that I think will be really significant in your life and in our church. And what we want to do in this sermon series is that we want to take a fresh look at the gospel. We want to look at the gospel afresh with hopes that as we do, that God would renew us. You know, we've been praying for renewal this year as a church. And I want to encourage you to continue to pray for that. Don't give up on that prayer. I think God is renewing us. Um, and, and one of the, the key components of spiritual renewal, when God renews his people, is that God's people experience a revived joy in the gospel. And so we're taking a fresh look at the gospel with hopes that God would revive us, that he would revive our joy, our knowledge, our understanding, our experience of the good news. I want to start with two things this morning before we get to our text that are, I think are important. Really answer the question, why do we need good news? Why do we need to take a fresh look at the gospel? Well, I think two reasons. So if you're taking notes, here's reason number one that we need a fresh look at the gospel. And it's this. This world is a mess. <laughs> You're like, groundbreaking. <laughs> this world is a mess. This world that we live in isn't right. I think you are aware of that, that there's something that's off. There's something that's off. I know you felt it. And perhaps maybe you try and live your life and kind of try and avoid the fact that this world that we live in is broken a mess. Maybe we try and just kind of numb ourselves with entertainment and just kind of get through the days, but the days turn into weeks, into months, into years, and it kind of leaves us with maybe some haunting questions as we think about what's going on in this world. In fact, the news headlines keep reminding us week after week, month after month, year after year, that this world that we live in is deeply broken. If it's not the news headlines, perhaps it's the, the, the aches or the deep longings in your own soul. Again, try and avoid it, try and escape it, try and hush it. But we know deep down, even in our souls, that we are not who we should be. We're not who we could be. If we're really honest with ourselves, we're not even who we pretend to be. If you've lived much life, you know that relationships are hard. Even the closest relationships in your life, marriage, family, those relationships are hard, if not impossible. And even just over the last 18 months, if we've learned anything through a pandemic, through economic turmoil, through political disappointments, it's that we are a people that need help. That we are a people who are more fragile, more frustrated, more unfulfilled, and perhaps more afraid than we dare admit. Sociologist Brene Brown, she published some research recently that said that this generation of human beings who are currently populating planet Earth are the most depressed medicated, in debt, and addicted generation of human beings that have ever lived on planet Earth. This world is a mess. We need help. In fact, here's the beautiful thing about the Bible. Hear me for a second. The beautiful thing about the Bible is that it does not try and hide 
the fact that this world is a mess and that we need help. You know, the Bible tells us the truth very clearly. It tells us what's gone wrong. It tells us that the world that we live in is indeed broken, and it's broken due to sin. It tells us that this world needs redemption. Romans chapter 8, verse 22 and 23 tells us that the world is groaning with pains of childbirth. What an image that Paul gives us in Romans, that this world is groaning for redemption. It is testifying to us, in other words. The world is speaking to us that it needs to be fixed, that it needs some good news. Paul goes on and he tells us that we are broken, that we too need redemption in verse 23. And many people are living their life looking to career or perhaps family or maybe the next relationship or the next spouse or the next politician, that maybe that's what will do it for me. Maybe that's what will fix it. Other people are trying to find their identity right now in self-expression or in sexuality or in some other mode because they know they're not quite who they should be or who they could be, and they're trying to kind of find a new sense, a renewed sense of who they could be. But here's the thing. None of those things are suitable saviors, and we know it, don't we? And so we need to rediscover the good news because the world is a mess, including us, but there is great hope and great redemption available in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's reason number one, that we need a fresh look at the gospel. The world's a mess. Here's reason number two. The the mess isn't just out there, is it? (laughs) The mess is also in here. The church, the broader church even, in America right now, I think is in a fog. So the world's in a mess. The church is in a fog. And particularly, I think that the church right now is in a fog on the gospel. I believe that broader evangelicalism is actually in danger of losing the gospel right now. Some of you might argue that it already has. There are so many different versions of what Christianity is that it's really hard to kind of know what's what, isn't it? And so we need to rediscover the gospel. We need to look at it afresh. Listen to what Daryl Bach says about this, this fog that we're in on the gospel. He says, when I hear some people preach the gospel today, I'm not sure that what I'm hearing is good news. Sometimes, he says, I hear a therapeutic call that, will make, that, that God will make us feel better or more prosperous. So this is, is one kind of version of the gospel that's out there that's creating this fog for us. And I'll call it the therapeutic gospel. And it goes something like this. It's the idea that God is simply a life coach in the sky who's up there to kind of help us accomplish our dreams and fulfill our desires, that, that this God is full of a lot of good advice, but yet he doesn't offer very many demands of us in our lives. Or perhaps maybe you think of it this way, maybe he's not a life coach, but he's like this cosmic vending machine that's up in the sky. And if you kind of put the right things in, some religious duty and the right activities, and then you push the right buttons, that what you want from God will fall out of the sky and into your life. There's this therapeutic gospel that's out there that is not the gospel at all. He goes on, Bach does, and he says, other times I hear so much about Jesus paying for sin that the gospel seems limited to simply a transaction, simply the removal of debt. And I'll call this the truncated gospel, okay? The truncated gospel. So we've got the therapeutic gospel that's out there that's kind of causing some confusion. Who is God and what is he really like and what does it mean to know him? And then there's this truncated gospel that's out there. Now, 
I call it the truncated gospel because the gospel is certainly Jesus died on a cross to pay for my sins, isn't it? But that is one piece of the gospel. That's not the whole of the gospel. Um, I've heard it said this one before. The cross is the hub of the gospel, but it is not the whole of the gospel. It is, it is certainly the part of the gospel in which everything else flows from, but it's not all that the gospel is. And so many of us live with kind of this truncated gospel where we think, Jesus died for my sins, hooray, but I don't know what in the world that has to do with the whole rest of my life. What does it have to do with what's going on in the world? We need to recover the whole gospel. Bach continues. He says, Still other times, I hear a presentation that makes the gospel seem more about avoiding something from God versus experiencing something with him. And I'll call this the Monopoly gospel. Anybody play Monopoly as a kid? I'll call this the Monopoly gospel. It goes something like this. Maybe many of you, this is the gospel that you grew up with. Hey, kiddo, how does a lake of fire sound? You want to go there? No? Pray this prayer. You get out of hell for free. You know, the Monopoly gospel. Hey, um, you know, eternal hell, streets of gold. What's it going to be, buddy? Check this box. And this Monopoly gospel, it, it, is hell real? Certainly. Now, do we believe in final judgment? Absolutely. Is the wrath of God real? Yes. You better believe it. But the gospel is more than a get out of hell for free card. Bach goes on. He says, other presentations make me think Jesus came to change politics in the world. Such political presentations make me wonder why God did not send Jesus to Rome rather than Jerusalem. I'll call this the political gospel. It's where one reads the Bible through the lens of their own political interests. It's where one dresses up their political ideology, ideology in Christian language. It's where, and this is a real problem, in the church in America right now. Christian nationalism is a real problem. It's, it's where people want to kind of take Jesus and make him simply an advocate for the great American cause rather than seeing him for who he is as King of kings, Lord of lords, God of all creation. And so we've got this therapeutic gospel, this truncated gospel, this monopoly gospel. We've got this political gospel, and it's all kind of creating this fog in the church in America, and we aren't really sure what's what. What does it mean to be a Christian today and to follow Jesus? Bach concludes, he says, None of these are the gospel that I see in the scriptures, though some are closer than others. Do you see the fog that we're in on the gospel? See, we need to recover the historical, biblical gospel, and that's exactly why, what we are after over the next four weeks, to help us as a local church get clear on the good news so that we might experience it afresh. And I believe that there are some of you who are here this morning who have never heard the true biblical gospel before. You've never really fully understood all the implications. And I want you to know that we are praying for you, that over the next four weeks, that you would hear the true gospel, that you would come to understand all of its implications and all of its good news for your life, and that you would come to know the real Jesus. And what an amazing thing that would be. That's what we're praying for. And I believe that there are others of you who are here this morning who have heard the gospel, you've been baptized, but perhaps you have lost your joy in the gospel. Did you know that Christians can lose their joy and their delight in the gospel? Did you know that? Did you know that that's a real thing that happens in our lives and in our walk with Jesus? And there are a lot of reasons 
for this. It could be the cares of the world distracting us and pulling us away from what is central and what is real. It could be sin that entangles us. It could be confusion. I remember several of my friends that went off to seminary and they started getting into some of the deeper things of theology and they just seemed to kind of just get curmudgeon you know, and they lost their real sense of joy for who Jesus is and what he's really done for them and what it really means for their life. I think perhaps one of the most common reasons that we can lose our joy and our delight in the gospel is familiarity, right? I mean, I grew up in the church. I've heard that a thousand times, and the gospel becomes so familiar to us that it's no longer good new, the good news that it is. I was thinking about that recently. I've had to take several flights. See, even how I said that, I've had to take several flights this summer, and I was thinking about the difference between my first couple of times I flew in an airplane and just that, like, wow, this is amazing. Like, oh, takeoff is so exciting, you know, and then you're up in the air and you're looking out the window and the clouds and you see how high you are. And, and this, this reality that you're like in a tube of metal flying at very high rates of speed way up in the sky is just kind of a mind-blowing reality. Like, this is crazy versus how I was this summer. And it's like, oh, my gosh, these people are annoying. I'm in the middle seat again. You know, like, I'm tired and bored. I'm going to go to sleep. It doesn't mean that it's not an amazing thing that you're flying through the sky in a tube of metal. You just become all too familiar with it. And for many of us, we're this way with the gospel. And so we need to rediscover the gospel. If this is you, we're praying that God would revive your joy in Jesus over the next four weeks. And so again, I want to encourage you to be here, to pray to that end, to open up your Bible, to pull out a pen, to take notes, to seek him, and you will find him. And so where do we begin? We begin here. What is the biblical gospel? The world needs it. The church is in a fog on it. What is it? What is the biblical gospel? Well, here is where I want to start. The gospel is first and foremost news. Write that down. The gospel is first and foremost news. It's a message. It's news about a real historical event that happened in human history. It's, think of it this way. There have been many events throughout my lifetime that have happened, real things that have happened, unexpected things that have happened that have forever changed the world, that have, that have changed things. I remember September 11th. Many of you remember September 11th. Like, it's this surprising, unexpected event that changed things in real ways for us. Like, now you have to go through security at the airport. Like, it really changed things. It, it changed the course of a lot of people's lives. Maybe more recently, think about where you were when it set in for you that the coronavirus was happening in the United States that we were in a pandemic. I remember where I was. I was watching an NBA game, which is pretty normal for me. And, um, and all of a sudden, this game gets canceled. And the next thing we know, the whole NBA season gets canceled. And I'm sitting there. I think I'm texting with Josh. And we're like, oh, my, you know, fill in the blanks. And um, we're like, this is, NBA is getting canceled. And then, then the bigger picture set in for us. It's like this thing that we were hearing about that was, you know, in other parts of the world. We saw pictures of what was happening in Italy, and then now we're getting word that it's kind of on our coasts, and now all these NBA players have it, and they've canceled the NBA season. It's like, I think something unexpected is happening that's about to change things for us. And you think back over the last 18 months, and it has, hasn't it? I mean, we have all this new vocabulary that if two years ago you would have heard yourself talking about aerosol droplets and social distancing and masking and vaccines and antibodies, you'd have been like, what planet am I living in? The gospel, similarly, it's news about something that really happened in real time in human history that has forever changed things for people. Turn with me, 
1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul's writing, and he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, of the news that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so he's established two things here. Again, the gospel is news. It's something that he came and heralded. It's a message that he brought. He was a messenger of the news. And that this news has saving power to those who believe. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So in other words, he's saying, I brought you the headline. I brought you the headline. What is the news? What happened? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying this. I brought you the news of what God has really done. The gospel, it is the message that God entered into real space-time history in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. The gospel, it is first and foremost a message about a real historical event. Hear me, the Christian faith is not mythology. The the Christian faith is not some kind of mystic, far-off spirituality. It is news. Jesus really lived. Jesus really died. He really rose again. He really appeared, and he really ascended into heaven. And in this, here's the claim of 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 the, the, the moment. Here's the claim of the event. That in this, the creator God, the transcendent one, is offering salvation from sin and redemption from all of its effects in our lives and in our world. This is the gospel message. It's news. And there is very, very good reason and even much credibility to believe this headline. Paul tells us that the person and work of Jesus was in accordance with the scriptures in the text. That's important. That's kind of code language that the original readers would have understood. Essentially, what he's saying is that God called his shots. (laughs) Jesus appeared in accordance with the scriptures, just as God promised. In other words, God had spoken to other real people, ancient peoples, and other times in history, the prophets of Israel, about exactly what he was going to do, and when he was going to do it, and how he was going to do it. Did you know that there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, the whole Bible is the story of God working in real space, time, human history. Do you you understand that? That's what the whole Bible is, God working in real human history, willing the world toward redemption and reconciliation. In fact, I want to show you a graphic that, that I think is really cool. I think it'll be on the screen. Yep, there we go. You're looking like, what is this? I love this graphic. This is a graphic kind of showing you all the different cross-references in the Bible. 
that we would see the Bible as telling us this one story. It's showing you kind of down here on this far end would be the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, and then you kind of get into the history books of the Bible and then into the prophets and the New Testament accounts of Jesus and kind of toward the end of the Bible down here. And it's showing you all the connecting points in the Bible. And it's not just cross-references that matter. What it's showing us is it's showing us how the Bible speaks to itself, how the promises and the prophecies in the Bible have come to be fulfilled over real human history over real time. It helps us see the Bible as one story. It helps us see the Bible for what it really is. It's the one account of how the holy, mysterious, transcendent creator God is working in this real world, even now. Even now. The gospel is historical. And we know that this work has reached its climax when God became man. What a claim. Just to think about that. That's the claim of Jesus of Nazareth, that God became man, that Jesus was born of a virgin. And this mattered. He was fully God, yet fully human in every way. He was born just as God told the prophets in their moment in history. Again, remember, this isn't mythology. It really happened. Jesus was really born among Israel in the year 4 B.C. When Augustus was really the emperor of Rome, and when Herod ruled over, Jerusalem, over Judea, and this Jesus, he grew up and he lived a perfect, sinless, beautiful human life as Israel's promised Messiah. In fact, historians won't deny that Jesus grew a massive following from all over Judea as he ministered from roughly A.D. 27 to A.D. 30. And despite his growing following and his miraculous ministry, he was in the end rejected by Israel. He was unjustly arrested and tried. History will, won't deny any of this. He was sentenced to crucifixion under Rome. He was severely beaten. He was eventually killed. He was buried in a real tomb. It's not a myth. He was buried in the real tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea who gives up his family tomb so that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, this who appeared to be a failed Messiah, could be properly buried because he had no place to lay his head. But that wasn't the end of the story. On the third day, when some of his followers went to the tomb, they were surprised to find it empty. Many tried to argue that the body was stolen, but that wasn't the fact at all. It had been raised to life, just as God said it would be, just as Jesus said it would be. The resurrected Jesus goes on to appear to hundreds of people over a period of 40 days before he ascends into heaven before many uh, eyewitness accounts. You see, the message of the gospel is that while the Jewish people in real history, in AD 30, were using the Roman courtroom to try Jesus for blasphemy because they thought he was a false prophet, and the Roman cross to unjustly kill Jesus, though he had been found guilty of no crime, God was using all of it to atone for our sins, to defeat our greatest enemy, death. By the way, did you know that despite all of our human advances in technology and science, and, and, all, and all of it, that we still can't deal with death. With all of our advances throughout history, the average life expectancy in this room is 78 years, all right? We still can't deal with this problem, but the claim of the gospel is that that's why Jesus came, to defeat death and to overcome all evil. You see, the message of the gospel is that God has done something in this real world. He has acted 
decisively to defeat sin and its sting, death and its power, and evil through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the good news of this message is that when you believe it, when you receive the headline, and when you stand on this, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in other words, you give your life to it. You give your allegiance to Jesus. You abandon every other story that might, you might be tempted to give your life to, and you give your life to the true story of Jesus and what God has done in Jesus, that you will be saved. And that is a profound promise. In fact, over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about this, how this moment in history changes everything. This real thing that happened changes everything for those who receive the news, believe it, and take their stand on it. It changes everything. You're going to see that when you receive the good news and give your allegiance to Jesus, that it has more profound effects on your life than you probably realize. There's more for you to live into, in other words. In fact, I want you just to imagine for a second in the ancient world, what it would have been like when news arrived to a village or a city that there was a new king. My wife was into this show for a while. She's going to kill me for saying this. It's our anniversary, by the way, too, and I'm going to get in trouble on our anniversary today. But <laughs> she was watching this show for a while. What was it called? Can we just do this? It, it, no, it doesn't matter. There, there's a show that she was watching for a while, and it was, uh, it was it's about these, I, I couldn't even watch it with her, but she loved it. It was, a, it was about these different kingdoms, right? And these guys in the ancient world that were at war and they were trying to, and it was probably rooted in some way in real history. But it made me think about as she was watching this show of like these new, you know, so-and-so, whatever his crazy name was, would, they would win the battle. And now he was victorious and they would come into the city and they would take over the city. In other words, a new kingdom was now in charge because they won the battle. I want you to think about what that had been like. If a, new, a, wor a word comes, a message comes, a gospel comes, that there's been a, a victory. Well, for most people, it would have meant a completely new way of life. Oh, man, all, our king, who we've been living under, has now been defeated. And it probably meant now embracing a harsh rule of whoever our conqueror is. New taxes I have to pay, a new way of life I have to learn, new customs, new culture now that's going to get uh, put over on my life, it's going to get lorded over me. Now, I want you to think about the claim of the victory of King Jesus. Just think about that. There's a new kingdom now. There's a new set of norms to put on. Except you don't pay the taxes. He paid the tax for you. He paid your price. He's not a ruler who's going to come over you with an oppressive rule. Instead, he's going to come over you as a gracious king, a king who redeems, a risen and reigning king with all power and all authority, who gives life, who redeems. He doesn't take from you. He gives. The only thing he asks you to give up in his kingdom are the things that are destroying you. What a gracious King Jesus. In fact, I want you to hear what Paul says about this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. What's the result of what Jesus really did for this real world? He says, He, God, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of death, the way of this world, this world that's a mess. He's delivered us from it, and He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. In his kingdom, we now learn a new way of life that is marked by forgiveness 
and redemption. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be mining deeper into this transforming grace of King Jesus. And what we're going to see is that the saving power of the gospel is multidimensional. There are, there are, there, it's multifaceted. We're going to see first and foremost that it's deeply personal in our lives when we come to stand upon, give our allegiance to Jesus, come to believe, to receive the news and stand on it. It's deeply personal in our lives. And we must come to terms with the truth that God embarrassingly loves us in Jesus. Hear me. God, if you're in Christ Jesus, if you've received the news, if you've believed the news, if you've given your allegiance to the news, God does not love some future version of you better than he loves you right now. You are beloved in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus do? He, he takes his robe off. He puts your sin on, and he clothes you in his robes of righteousness. The gospel is deeply personal. You are fully loved and accepted by a holy God, and learning to live in Jesus' kingdom means continually growing in your relationship with God and learning to live into these benefits and to live out the new identity he gives as a beloved son or daughter. That's what we're looking at next week, the gospel. It really happened, and it has real personal implications for your life. It's good news. And then we're going to see that the gospel is relational. It's deeply relational. In Jesus' kingdom, we're called to put away all malice and deceit and envy and slander. That comes from 1 Peter 2.1. We're called to put those things away. That sounds a lot like the world, doesn't it? Hatred, deceit, envy, slander, canceling. Sounds a lot like the dominion of darkness. Instead, we're called to be kind to one another. Ephesians 4, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. Why is this how we relate to one another in the kingdom of God? Well, because the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, it was not only victorious over the effects of sin that separated us from God on the vertical axis, but it also tears down the dividing wall of hostility that affects us on the horizontal axis. The reason that relationships are so hard, because not only are we sinners to God, but we sin against one another and we wound one another and we're wounded by other people. And this is really good news for us that there's a relational dimension to the redeeming power of the gospel. This is good news for our marriages. It's good news for our families. It's good news for our friendships. It gives us confidence to, de to forge deep relationships and community with other Christians. It compels us to seek healing when we've been wounded and forgiveness and ask forgiveness when we've wounded others. It gives us hope to pursue reconciliation and unity across racial and socioeconomic and cultural lines. Most importantly, the relational dimension of the gospel reminds us that there's no such thing as an individualistic Christian, but that God has purchased us, purchased us into his family. We're part of the family of God. We belong to a local church. We are members of his body. And finally, we're going to see that the gospel is not just personal. It's not just good news for us relationally, but it, ha it has good news implications for the whole world, or it's societal, you could say. It's missional. As the gospel goes to work in us and we start to experience its power, we start getting freed up from our sin and from our doubt and from our guilt and from our shame. We start to learn that we're loved and beloved children of God. We start to love one another in that same way. God works in us and among us and that he wants to work through us in the world. In other words, as Christians in this world, we do not sit back idly and wait for Jesus to return and just kind of live our life for whatever cause 
whatever thing we want to live for. That's how we get in a fog on the gospel. Nor do we rage against the culture as culture warriors for Christ. But instead, we live and work in such a way that displays the kingdom of God. We live and work in such a way that we are salt and light. We point others to the good news of the gospel in word and deed. There is so much good news in the work of Jesus. And so what is the gospel? It's news. It's really, really good news. It's a message about what God has done in and for this real world through Jesus. It's news with saving power that affects every area of our life. And it's news that has been told through the generations. I love that we sang the Apostles' Creed this morning. You might not have known that, but that first song that we sang was the Apostles' Creed. This good news has gone forward from the apostles throughout generation. No matter what has been going on in this chaotic, groaning world, the good news has gone forth. And it will continue to be told. And it will continue to save and transform men and women and children in the generations to come until the day that Jesus returns. And here's the deal about the gospel. Here's the thing about the good news. Anyone can get in on it. Anyone. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been. There is no one that is beyond the saving power of God because of what he has done in Jesus. And so as we close this morning, I want to invite our worship team to come back up. We're going to close with just a time of response. And I want to ask you as we respond, I want to ask you to consider one question. And I don't want you to consider this question on behalf of anyone else but you. We do that sometimes, don't we? As we listen to a sermon, like, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. Or this would be good for whoever. I want you to consider this question only for you. And here it is. What will you do with the news about Jesus? What will you do with the news about Jesus? You see, the news, this word about what God has done in Jesus, this claim, it demands a response. That's the thing. It demands a response. And the biblical word for this response that the New Testament gives us is repentance. That's what we see in the book of Acts as the apostles are proclaiming this news. They say, repent and be baptized. That's how we get in on what God is doing in the world. We repent. And to repent is to say no to the ways of the world and to say yes to Jesus. That's what repentance is. That's how we get in on what God is really doing in the world. The saving power of Jesus. As we say no to the world and we say yes to Jesus. We say yes to his life for our life. We say yes to his death for our death in our place. We say yes to his way, not our way. That's why I like the word allegiance. We're giving our allegiance over to Jesus. Being a Christian means we've given up on our own way and we want to come and live under the lordship of a gracious king and why is this a proper response repentance and baptism baptism is simply a way that we that we identify with jesus we identify with him and we we say i'm with him i've given my allegiance to him i'm i'm living now a life of forgiveness and redemption that's in his kingdom why is this the proper response repentance well it doesn't allow us to be indifferent with jesus I think that's one of the the reasons there's so much fog right now. 
in the American church is there's a lot of people who are indifferent with Jesus, maybe because they're not sure what the gospel really is and what it really demands from us. But repentance and baptism won't allow us. Jesus is either who he said he is or he's not. And there's a lot of good reason to believe the news about him. In fact, if you choose to say yes to Jesus and to give your allegiance over to him, you join in a long line of saints, a rich history of men and women who have found Jesus faithful and true, who have experienced him to be real, who have really had their lives transformed by his grace, who have lived out redeeming grace, who have given their lives over to him and have not found him lacking or wanting. And so here's what I want to do this morning. If you have not given your allegiance to Jesus, maybe for the first time you are hearing the real gospel and you've said, maybe I've kind of thought God was a, a life coach in the sky or a vending machine or I've made the gospel too small or I've gotten too caught up in politics. If you've never given your life over to Jesus and you want him to change you and transform you and redeem you right where you are, I just want to invite you to pray. In fact, if all of us here, if you just bow your head for a moment, if you would just close your eyes. If you've never given your allegiance to Jesus, I just want to invite you to pray with me. God knows your heart. He discerns your thoughts. And so you can just pray this prayer right where you are in your mind, in your heart. You can just say to him, Jesus, so Jesus, I believe who you are and I trust what you've done. Jesus, I receive your gospel. I turn from my sin and I turn to you as my savior. Jesus, I make you my king. I want to live my life with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to hear me. If you prayed that prayer this morning, tell someone. I want to invite you to tell someone. That's kind of the first step of obedience when we give our allegiance to Jesus is that it comes out of our heart and our mind and we tell someone, hey, I'm with Jesus now. I want to learn to live in the forgiveness and the redemption and the grace that's in Jesus. And so grab me afterward. When we sing here in a moment, I'll be in the back. You can come grab me and tell me, hey, I prayed that prayer. We want to rejoice with you. We want to walk with you. Tell somebody that brought you this morning that you prayed that prayer this morning and we want to teach you how to begin to live your way in the way of Jesus. And then maybe there's others of you here. There's probably many of you here who this morning, you've already been baptized. You've, you, you, you would identify as a Christian. And I want to ask you too this morning, what will you do with the message of Jesus? I want you to consider, does Jesus currently have your full allegiance? Does he currently have your full allegiance? We talked about it earlier, but you now we can get distracted in this world. We can get entangled in sin. We can lose our joy. We can drift other ways. We can get confused. We can, we can get so familiar with the gospel that we maybe kind of start to give our lives over to other things and we don't even realize it. Or just going through the motions. Does, does Jesus have your full allegiance? You know, discipleship is to say every day, I'm going with Jesus today. That's what it means. And there's some days we wake up and we don't say that. But it's to say every day, I'm going with Jesus. And so maybe what you need is just a space where God can speak to you this morning and be reminded of the good news and what's really matters and what's really ultimate. And you can say this morning, you can say, I'm going with Jesus. I've gotten distracted, I've drifted, but I'm going 
with Jesus. And here's the thing, that the more that we say that, I'm going with Jesus, and the more that we renew that commitment and our faith is renewed, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I live by faith in the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. So the more that we live by faith and we say, I'm going with Jesus today, I'm going to renew my faith, I'm going with Jesus today, I'm going to go adrift, but I'm going with Jesus today. The more that we do that, guess what happens? The more that we become like him. The more that we begin to experience his transformative power in his life. And so I just want to invite you, if that's you, in this moment, again, just to, in a quiet space, in a quiet room, would you just submit to King Jesus? Would you submit to his gracious rule over your life right now? Just bow your head, close your eyes. Perhaps there's some sin that you want to confess to him. Maybe there's idols in your life that have become ultimate in Jesus's place that have taken the throne of your heart and you need to just confess that over to him. Maybe you need to ask him to help you. There's some real struggles in your life that you've kept from him and you're weak and you need to just ask him to help you. Would you renew your faith in Jesus? I want to give you a moment just to pray to him. We sang this earlier, but he's risen and reigning. He is our great high priest. Would you draw near to Jesus with hope that he will draw near to you? And after a few moments, we're going to stand, we're going to sing, and we're going to continue to respond. 